Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer. Wanted to tell you about our newest podcast that is exclusive to Spotify. It is called The Hottest Take. These are short podcasts. These are going to be like seven to nine minutes, multiple times per week. It's one take. Sweet potatoes are bullshit. You're going to get takes like that. You're going to take about sports. If Cliff Kingsbury looked like Brad Childress, he would never work again. Pop culture, you're going to hear from me. Home Alone is not a Christmas movie. Ludicrous. This is an interesting <laughs> take because the name of the show is the hottest thing, not the worst take. You're going to hear from Ryan Rossillo, Mallory Rubin, Jason Concepcion, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy, Shay Serrano, my buddy House, and many more Ringer staffers and friends of the Ringer family, some celebrities. It's going to be exclusive on Spotify, multiple times per week, coming September 16th from the Ringer Podcast Network. All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. Thanks for listening to Black on the Air, you guys. Last night, this is um, talking on Friday morning right now, we got the presidential debate 10 deep. Keeping people engaged for three hours. Oh, my God. Three hours. It was a three-hour debate with 10 candidates. Oh, whoo. Took all my energy just to stay awake. Really, really interesting podcast today with one of my favorite people, Mr. Ken Burns. I've seen all of his stuff. Huge fan. Um, I got to meet him when he did my show, The uh, Nightly Show, a little while ago. And, uh, man, it was so great to have him. Ken, keep, he keeps it not just 100. He keeps it 1,000. He has a special called Country Music, which starts on PBS uh, this weekend. And it's real fascinating, especially for me. I, there's a lot I didn't know about country music, you know. And uh, he does his, the Ken Burns effect, if you will. And it's really, it's really great. So tune in to watch Country Music on PBS. Ken Burns coming up in a good conversation. But let's talk about the debate. What to think about these Democrats? What to think It'd be interesting to see where people come out. You know, it seems like Joe Biden is in a position where he's not so much trying to win the hearts of America. It's like he's trying to hold on (laughs) to his job of front runner. And it's a very odd thing to see because most of the time in these debates, people are trying to win us over, you know. And it's a weird dynamic with Biden as this front runner who's just trying to not fuck up too much. You know, which is what it seems like. And so a lot of the criticism of Biden is, did he fuck this up? And even from some of the other candidates, you know, their concern is that he might fuck this up. Like even uh, Cory Booker in an interview with uh, CNN is concerned that Biden might fumble this at the end. You know, not that he's the right person for the job or whatever, you know. So it's a very interesting thing to watch it through that lens and to see who did what, you know. I'd like to talk about this maybe in a broader sense, you know, and and cover some of the things that happen. Here's the thing. We seem to be at a place right now, and I think the Democrats are feeling it at a decisive point in this election for the Democrats in terms of what are they going to do? What is their main objective here? Is their main objective to beat Donald Trump, which a lot of people would agree with, or is their main objective to have a leader— with the progressive vision for the future. Like, even in the absence of Trump, that's what we want. You know, people might say, why can't we have both? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The people who are on the side of let's replace Trump primarily, I believe, 
and the establishment part of the party, which I will call liberal for want of a better word right now, seem to have Biden in that position as the person most likely to supplant Trump because of his experience. He's well-known. He's well-liked. He was with Obama. He's got a, a huge portion of the black vote, which is very important and people cannot ignore. You know, he seems the most poised to replace Trump. But there's nothing about Biden that makes people want to jump on the vision train. You know, that's somebody like Elizabeth Warren. Who's the person that people want to what, what train do people want to jump on for the future? When you think about progressives and people who really want to shake up government, do things differently, universal health care, all these ideas, get rid of college. Elizabeth Warren seems like the one poised to be that person right now. It's I think at this point it's a two person race. Who are you going to bet on? Are you going to bet on a progressive vision of the future, Elizabeth Warren? Or are you going to vote on a retaking of the control of government? with Joe Biden, right? So that's how I'm kind of looking at it, you know, when I'm looking at, at the debate. And you see it kind of choosing sides. So you see people like Amy Klobuchar, who, you know, is more on that Biden train, maybe Buttigieg, maybe, is kind of straddling that area. Cory Booker, it's kind of hard to see where he is. He's kind of a mm, little bit in the middle. Kamala's on the Warren side, but now she's moved back a little bit to try to judge her position like she's moved back on the thought of getting rid of your private insurance you know because she's she's kind of calculating where she should be of course bernie's the one who created this platform in the beginning you know four years ago he's got bernie's got to be kind of upset that he's ceding a lot of this ground to elizabeth Warren. but i'm sorry she, she just seems to be a better deliverer of that message right now now i talked about once before how, how I like to break down the way that politicians communicate with us. And I was making the case that I believe that that uh, Trump's big appeal to the people who like him is because they feel he's honest. And people are like, hold on, Trump lies all the time. How is he honest? But I was making a distinction between what I believe is honesty and what is truth. And honesty, I'm saying, is just you really expressing your feelings to people. This is how you feel about something. You're being honest about it. And you're using that honesty to sell yourself, you know, sell that idea, you know, like Trump honestly believes that Muslims should not come into the country. He's being honest about that. And the people who vote for him agree with him on that. And they appreciate his honesty about that. You know, he, he was the most honest about immigration and how he felt about that. You know, he was a fool on so many other things. And, but people didn't care because he was honest about the thing that they cared the most about. Right. And truth, I was saying, is when. Someone tells you something that is a fact that has nothing to do with their feelings. They're telling the truth about something, right? Sometimes it might even get in the way of what they actually want and who they are. You know, they're telling you the truth. One of the big examples of that, this is way back in the day, but Walter Mondale, when he ran against Reagan, he said, here's the difference between me and Reagan. We're both going to raise your taxes, but he won't tell you, and I just did, you know. So Mondale told the truth. He was going to raise your taxes, and it actually hurt him. People didn't like that. But he told the truth. He was right, you know. When somebody's telling you the truth about something, sometimes it could be at the cost of what they're doing, and sometimes it can help. You don't know, but it has nothing to do with that. So that's what's interesting about it. The third thing that I added was bullshit. Now, this is what most politicians give us because they're selling us something. So most of the time, they appear to us in bullshit. This is why most people don't can't stand politicians. They don't like them. And by the way, when Trump said Mexico's going to pay for the wall, that's a bullshit line. You know, he knows he's selling us crap, you know, all that stuff. But people, remember, 
people who voted for him didn't care about the Mexico line. They cared about the Mexican rapist line. You know, that's where he's being honest. That's how he really feels about it, you know. Most politicians, that's their bread and butter is the bullshit category. You know, that's how they present themselves. I believe the three people that had sincere moments last night where they kind of revealed something of themselves was Buttigieg, Beto, and Biden, the killer bees, right? Three bees in the race. They were all very interesting, different moments. And Buttigieg's probably came too late because he was kind of invisible during it. And it's something he has shared before, but the way in which he shared it last night I thought was very effective. Beto, let's talk about his first, because I believe that Beto's sincere moment— This is the first time I really liked Beto. They would talk to him about guns. I've always called him a little douchey. He seems a little douchey to me, right? (laughs) I just can't help it. But I got to give Beto credit, man. The whole El Paso shooting and the whole Texas shootings that happened has really affected him in a way that is um, very disarming, Because you can see he's wearing his heart in his sleeve right now. I don't think he's thought a lot of this through. He said when they asked him would he have the government confiscate AK-47s, AR-15s, he actually agreed with that. He said, yes, we will come for your guns. Let's listen to that for a second. Are you proposing taking away their guns and how would this work? I am. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield... If the high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers, when we see that being used against children, and in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15, and that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa and Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. Hell yes. And the way in which he presented that was very sincere. He really revealed himself and the way in which he's been touched by these shootings in Texas. I think he's being more than honest about it. He's being very sincere. I don't think it was a good moment politically, but I'm giving him credits for his his sincerity. I don't think Democrats should be talking about confiscating guns. I said this as a joke, unlove it or leave it. I even explained to you that You know, in the actual implementation of it, I don't think people should be knocking on your doors and taking your guns. I know I said that as a joke, but if you're going to ask me what I think we should really do, I believe, you know, there's got to be some way to get certainly not sell them anymore. You know, some kind of buyback thing or whatever. I'm not an expert in this, but it, it would be great. And I wish I had the best idea, but I don't. But it would be fantastic. Beto talked a little bit more about this on Morning Joe this morning. And explained it a little bit, but he didn't back down from that statement. But I think it's going to hurt him and it could hurt the Democrats because that shit is red meat to the other side about the government coming and taking your guns. But I have to give him credit about the sincerity of it, you know, revealing himself and the way that he described what those guns actually do to a human body. And he's right. And that's why I said we need to talk about these not as guns, but as weapons of mass destruction. And even in the news right now. They're calling them more weapons of war, some of these things. So I'll take that as a way to change the conversation. So good for you, Beto, for being sincere. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to help you. But what am I going to say? I got to give you props for that, you know. 
The other was Pete Buttigieg, which it came kind of late, where they were asking them um, a question about um, – God, what was the question? I can't remember. Kai, do you remember what the question actually was? I think the question was, can you think about a time you had a setback? A setback. It was something in that area, a setback. And it's a moment. Now they're set up to actually have a sincere moment, you know. And most people gave kind of their rote speeches. You know, Elizabeth Warren gave the thing she talked about before, going to college, blah, blah, blah. But I thought Pete Buttigieg, even though he's talked about this before, the way that he said it in this context just hit me in another way. Let's play uh, Pete Buttigieg's response. You know, as a military officer serving under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and as an elected official in the state of Indiana when Mike Pence was governor, at a certain point when it came to professional setbacks, I had to wonder whether just acknowledging who I was was going to be the ultimate career-ending professional setback. <clears throat> I came back from the deployment and realized that you only get to live one life, and I was not interested in not knowing what it was like to be in love any longer. So I just came out. I have to tell you guys, I've heard that story before, but in the context of last night, I thought it was very, very— I thought it was Buttigieg's best moment, by the way. We forget— to think about what someone's experience is when it's different from ours. We forget that many times, you know. And when you think about, I mean, it's so fucked up that who you actually are, like the fact that you are a homosexual, cannot be revealed. Like your basic, the basic thing about you, you're running to be a mayor of a town and the one of the most basic things Things about you as a person can't even be revealed. I mean, the weight of that was fascinating to me. And the way in which he spoke about it, I thought was very sincere. He didn't overplay it. He didn't, it wasn't a pandering moment at all. He was very sincere about that. And he's right, you know, to come out in the way that he did, it could have hurt him politically. It could have done all these things. And ended up not doing it. But both the moment that he came out and the sharing with us, I thought both were sincere. I don't think it helped him last night. Because I think it was kind of invisible last night. And I think people may be done on the Buttigieg train right now only because I don't think he's presenting him. I don't think he has enough gravitas right now for what people are looking for in the Democratic Party, if I'm going to put it very succinctly. Okay, finally, Joe Biden. But Biden's been around a long time. We all know Biden's story. But Biden, here's the thing about Joe Biden. The, one of the reasons why people like him is because they feel Joe, they call him a regular guy. He's a regular Joe. You know, and sometimes that's overused with politicians. Sometimes it's that, oh, shucks, that thing, you know, and it's overused. But Joe does have a basic decency about him that I think a lot of people like that is not political. And it has to do with loss. And he's had, Jesus, I mean, the type of loss that he's experienced is not to be wished upon anybody, you know, and he doesn't really share it. He's not happy with sharing it. It doesn't put him, I think he feels too vulnerable. And he even interrupts himself in his answer to talk about what his dad says when he's about to tell us about his loss. But let's listen to, to Joe Biden's moment. And I, uh, um, it took, you know, Kierkegaard said, faith sees best in the dark. Right after I got elected, my wife and daughter were killed in an automobile accident and my, and my, uh, my two sons are badly injured. And I just been elected, not sworn in. And, uh, I lost my faith for a while. 
I came back. And then later, when my son Bo came home from Iraq and with a terminal disease, and uh, a year later, a year and a half later, losing him was like losing part of my soul. But the fact is that I learned that the way you deal with it is you deal with finding purpose, purpose in what you do. And it just takes, it just for me, the way I've dealt with it is uh, finding purpose. And my purpose is do what I've always tried to do and uh, stay engaged in public policy. And That's what I mean. I have to give Biden props right there. And he lost his son, Bo, very publicly just a couple of years ago. And I have to tell you, the affection that even the Obamas had for, for Biden and the way that they all came together during that was very inspirational. And, you know, of course, it's a sad story for anybody to tell that. But, but here's the thing. Biden, I think— just revealed himself as a very resilient person. And I think people respect that. And I think that plays better than the Biden gaffes at the end of the day. And Biden has a lot of gaffes and he has a lot of areas where he is not capturing the imagination of the young electorate. And by young, I don't mean age. I mean young party-wise of where the party wants to go. He's not doing that. He may not have to do it to get the nomination, but he's certainly not doing that. And like in the whole area of race and all that stuff, I mean, Biden has the ultimate black friend, Obama, right? I mean, it's fine that your proximity to the most popular black man ever in the history of the country is great. But, you know, when Biden talks about race, it sounds like somebody who's kind of caught still from another era, you know, of using social workers to go into people's houses and help people to raise kids. Man, you do not want to go in there. The whole record player thing. That's kind of what that question was about. He was asked about, you know, dealing with systemic racism, and he just got into a place that was just messy. Let's play that. We have to make sure that every single child does, in fact, have three, four, and five-year-olds go to school. School, not daycare. School. We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. <laughs> no, 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 a thousand no's. You know, uh, yes, we can make fun of the record player and all that, but man, this... Joe, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do about this area. You know, he's already on blast from the woke left about the crime bill, you know, but he should not be talking about race at all if I were him or he needs to get uh, he needs to he he needs to get a firm strategy on how he's going to talk about this issue, because you have people talking about reparations on this one side and he's talking about 1960 social workers going into people's houses. So. I don't think it's going to hurt Biden, but I think he needs to get better at that. So my disappointments from last night, I will say a big, a couple of disappointments. Bernie Sanders, I'm kind of disappointed in. I feel like Bernie's, I don't, I don't want to say he's done, but who is Bernie's audience right now that they wouldn't feel more comfortable in Elizabeth Warren's camp? That's what I don't understand. And maybe Bernie and Elizabeth Warren need to go at it and distinguish himself. I like Bernie a lot. I think he's a great guy. I think, like I said, I don't. I think she may have taken his best ideas. I don't mean she's stolen them, but I think they're on that same side. But it just feels like 
Elizabeth Warren is a is a better candidate for that. I hate to say that because I really do like Bernie. You know, not even that I agree with all of Elizabeth Warren. I'm I'm more on the liberal side than the progressive side when it comes to that distinction. For me personally, the other disappointment, um, the other disappointment was Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, to me, instead of sincerity, she had so many insincere moments. And I've said this about her before, and I think some people didn't quite get it. But last time was an example. She was trying this joke strategy where she's joking around and she's laughing and everything. And it just seemed odd to me, you know, that she's trying to be in that lane. And the other was overpraising Obama because it seemed like she was slamming Obama, you know, before. And the other candidates did that, too, you know, but she kind of overlathered it and everything. Said, stop it. We Just stop it, people. Just stop it. You're obviously doing this on purpose, you know. But the way in which, and she even tried to do this joke with Biden, this yes, we can, or whatever. But it was just, it was just lame to me. If, I think if Kamala Harris wanted to stay in her lane, be a fucking prosecutor. Be who you are. Be the attorney general. Attack. That's where she came off best before. And own your shit at the same time, too. If you fucked up, say, yeah, I fucked up, but here's what we can do, you know? She shouldn't be joking with Trump about watching Fox News and all that. She should be attacking Trump. Like, those, to me, that's her strength. When she's in attack mode, when she was on that uh, Senate confirmation hearing for, uh, what's his name? I don't know, you know, whatever. Supreme Court, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Look, I put his, his his name out of my head. But she was fantastic on there, you know, when she's in attack mode. That's her strength. You know, people are attracted to that about her. That's where she shows leadership abilities when she's in that mode. But I think somebody talked her out of that or whatever, you know. And I think part of the thing that frustrates, frustrates me with Kamala is I don't think she's authentic enough. You know, I think she's too— strategizing, you know, it's what happened to Al Gore in 2000 where he listened to all of his handlers. He became this robot or whatever, but I think it's hurting her. I, I think she's listening to too many people, you know. Yes, she had a fine joke with um, when they blamed Trump for that shooting. She said, well, I don't think he's responsible but with his tweets. He's certainly providing the ammunition. Great, great line, but I believe it's a professional joke. I don't know if it really shows her wit, you know, or if she... If that's who she is, is a person that likes to joke about these things, you know. So very disappointing. The last one is uh, Castro. I was very disappointed with Castro in the way that he attacked Joe Biden. And do we have that? Not to leave 10 million people uncovered. They, he wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would they not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If she qualifies for Medicaid, Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy in. You're forgetting that. I said anyone like your grandmother who has no money. We need a health care system You're automatically enrolls people regardless of whether they choose to opt in or not, if you lose your job. Okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't like this at all, man. What he says, are you forgetting? Castro, are you forgetting that you're a Democrat, for Christ's sakes? What is he, a Manchurian candidate? Why is he doing the work of Donald Trump and the Republicans? Castro has no possible chance of winning this nomination, guys. No possible chance, okay? What he can do is present his ideas, distinguish himself, 
give uh, stuff for a Democratic platform, that type of thing. When you're on that outside thinking you may have a chance or whatever, present yourself to the American people. But the way that he's trying to cripple Joe is a way that is giving Republicans ammunition, and I don't like it. I mean, Trump is already calling him Sleepy Joe and all that. Some of those things about Joe might be true, but to insinuate that somebody has Alzheimer's or, you know, has dementia or that type of thing, it it just hurts him. It makes him look bad. It's not funny either. I don't like it. I don't like that kind of uh, going after our own type of thing. Yes, I'm a Democrat, and you know I'm a team player. I don't like that kind of crap. There is a more clever way to do that, you know, that isn't in that same vein. I think it hurts Castro, and I think, you know, the way that Beto's line, which I did like but I think might hurt the party, this is something I don't like and I think hurts who may in fact be the uh, front runner. Who knows, you know, and I think it's unnecessary. Nasty and unnecessary, you know. And the thing is, the truth about Biden is that Biden has always has marbles in his mouth. That motherfucker, he never gets his story straight, you know. He's always been like that. Unfortunately, because he is older, it doesn't look good on him, you know. I think he's probably better when he has scripted moments and that type of thing. But I do think it is unfair to make that assessment. So there you go. That's my little preachy thing. So there you go, guys. The race is on. We'll see who's going to come out. As I said, I think it's a two-person race between Warren and Biden. I think that's where the party is right now. They're trying to decide, do we want to just replace Trump or do we want to put a candidate out there who represents the future of the Democratic Party, which, you know, that future is the progressive wing of the party. That's what people are thinking. We'll see. I like them both, to be honest with you. I don't agree with, of course, all of their platforms, but personally, I like them both, too. Elizabeth Warren, I think, is fantastic. I think she's so smart, and um, I think she was ahead of her time. When I say—I don't mean to say that she took Bernie's platform, by the way. I don't want to insinuate that, because Elizabeth Warren was ahead of her time in terms of the things that she did. I think she's stealing—it's better to say that she's stealing Bernie's thunder on that side of the platform is probably a better way to to, uh, put it. Not that she took anything from him. She's got her own thing. So there we go. So that's what we'll cover as we come up. We're going to see— Who's lining up on what side? I think that's the way to look at this from now on, you know. All right. Kim Burns is coming up next. All right. Welcome back, guys. I'm very excited. I'm a huge fan of this guy. He was so kind to come on the old nightly show. I mean, he really needs no introduction, but I would give him one anyway. He's <laughs> the documentarian of our times, Mr. Ken Burns. Hey, Ken, welcome to Black on the Air. Thanks for having me. I mean— G- Glad you're Black on the Air. Yes, exactly. I'm glad I'm Black on the Air, too. I mean, everything from Brooklyn Bridge, you know, your humble beginnings— your humble, brilliant beginnings, I would say, to Civil War, which is still striking. You know, I take out Civil War now and then and watch it again. It's still relevant in so many ways. You know, you know? there's a moment at the end when the uh, scholar Barbara Fields, yeah. uh, who sometimes gets overshadowed in that series mm-hmm. just by the avuncular nature of Shelby Foote, says at the very end of the film that the Civil War is still going on. It's this is back in 1990. It's, yeah. it, it's still being fought, and it can still be lost. Wow. And, you know, after Charlottesville, a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. we brought that out 
didn't need to dust it off because Mm-mm. we know it, all the old tropes are all there. You know, we're still fighting over the stupid monuments and the yeah. flag stuff. And it, it it just seems like this is the most important Im- event in our in yeah. our existence, not our creation, not what's going on now. And it tells us who we are and continues to tell us. And, yeah. and, and I, I just want to say not just in – in uh, bad ways because mm-hmm. of the pernicious It reveals reason. who we actually are. It's who we yes. are and some of that's good. I mean, mm-hmm. we got Lincoln out of it and, right. and, you know, better angels and mystic chords of memory and malice towards none and the Gettysburg Address mm-hmm. and we got a, 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 a sort of a pole star to sort of lead toward but too often the baser instincts obtain yeah. and we go back to these insane tribal manifestations and, yeah. and when you have a, you know, somebody like Trump there that, that realizes <laughs> that he can advance himself on these things, then you give permission to the people that might have been at least a little bit shamed by mm-hmm. expressing it. Now they feel sort of given permission to express this kind of this stuff. Kim Barron's keeping it 100% real right off the bat. Uh, you're absolutely right. And what's interesting about your work, too, is that it can be about something like baseball, you know, which you think is a, is about sports, but it really isn't. No. You know, what's fascinating about even the baseball documentary is how much of American history is in there and how much it tells us about ourselves. And you're right. It's good and bad. It's got right. both of those mixed in. And, and I saw it as the sequel to the Civil War. And people wow. thought, oh, man, you're out of your mind. But I right. go, you know, in, in, that, in the Civil War, Shelby Foote said that the Civil War defined us. And I thought, you know, it, people just tend to assume that that our history – is really just a succession of presidential administrations punctuated by wars. <laughs> yeah, but it yeah, forgets yeah, yeah. a lot of bottom-up stuff of labor, yeah. minorities, women, ordinary, so-called ordinary people. And if you think about it, the first real progress in civil rights after the Civil War is on April 15, 1947, mm-hmm. when Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, marches out to play first base at Abbott's Field. Yeah. And that was before you know lunch clowners were integrated. It was before Brown versus Board mm-hmm. of Education. It was before Rosa Parks consciously refused to give up her seat, though Jackie had done it a few years before and been Mm -hmm. court-martialed at Fort Hood. It was before the integration of the military. Before all of that stuff, this is the beginning of the modern civil rights era. So when Dr. King was in trouble in some places in Albany, Georgia, he calls in Jackie Robinson to come, and all of a sudden, folks are coalescing. And, and, you know, that when we did our Jackie Robinson thing a few years ago— the baseball stuff was familiar and interesting and we yeah. could remove some of the old mythologies. You know, Pee Wee Reese didn't come up and put his arm around him mm-hmm. to show solidarity in Cincinnati when the racist, you know, knuckleheads were calling from the stand. just didn't happen. But somehow white people need to, surprise, surprise, need to have some skin <laughs> in the game, right? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it's funny when you bring up Jackie Robinson, I feel like he's all but forgotten in some ways. I don't know if young people have a sense of Jackie Robinson. They they actually was, do, I'm happy to say. Oh, well, that makes me we, happy. So, yeah. so, so with Dr. King and with Jackie, there's mm-hmm. like a lot of kids' books. And so pretty early on, okay. white and black, at least in the, in the mm-hmm. bluer shaded parts, you kind of get an introduction early. My problem is, is that these are one-dimensional, yeah. purely heroic, which is exactly appropriate at that age. But that what happens is mm-hmm. we go forward, we tend to leave them one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And we don't explore their complexity, their flaws, uh, right. their failings, but more importantly – the way they understood the complexity of life. So right now, uh, I'm doing a big series on the history of Muhammad Ali, a biography. I can't and wait. it isn't just really it isn't just, wait. you know, this fight or these two years or this refusal, but Louisville childhood to, you know, death by 
Parkinson's. Mm. And and in between is a really complex story in which you have to struggle with an African-American community trying to figure out how do we do this? You know, is it going to – are we just going to continue with the accommodation stuff? Are we going to – is our nonviolent protest going to be violent? You know, what what sure. happens? Are, are, are we Panthers? Are we Nation of Islam? Are we Muslims? You know, and so I just interviewed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar about a couple weeks ago today and – it's so interesting to have someone who joined an authentic uh, Muslim sect yes. as opposed to the kind You're of hybrid cuckoo-ness yes. of the nation of Islam <laughs> yes. and and see both in very interesting and in sometimes sad and heartbreaking ways the way in which Muhammad Ali was for a time under their thrall so much so that you could hold uh, Malcolm X – at arm's length because that's what Elijah Muhammad wanted you to do. That's what yeah. Herbert Muhammad wanted you to do. So I, I'm, I'm interested in this. I just don't want it to be let's have a march on Washington. Then LBJ mm-hmm. signed the Civil Rights Act and everything was fine for black people after that. I know. You know, it's interesting. I, it's funny. We're going off on a tangent before we get to this, but this is great because what you do well in, in all of your work, and I want to – I'll speak about Ali specifically on this point too, is you give – the rich context you give for the times because a lot of like ordinary context is lost in history. Like what were people buying in those days? You know, what kind of, what kind of sayings are going on? What was the culture actually like? Hugely important. A lot of those things are lost. Now the nation of Islam question with with Muhammad Ali is really kind of glossed over. You know, like my my father did not regard them highly. (laughs) My father's from Chicago. He knew about initiatives. They sold bean pies mainly in that area, but they were very politically popular. But here was the other side of it. Here's the other side. As much as we can dismiss them for a lot of their ideas, like they actually thought that white people came from outer space was one of the things that they taught, you know, and, you know, some crazy stuff like that. But the thing that it did give Ali is a black fierceness. That's right. You know, and that was more powerful than anything. Well, I would even that suggest— That was probably more powerful on the positive side than the negative I, I, I agree completely, yes. and I think the film will show that. And I, and I only meant to say that it, it was a classically American kind of hybrid yes. of hodgepodge of, of Islam to some extent. And this is where yeah. Malcolm X, you know, because he was getting popular, gets pushed out mm-hmm. and had to be, you know, uh, ostracized. Yeah. But he— understood a little bit more of what authentic Islam was. Yeah. The problem was this is like in classic American hucksterism. Right. This, but at the heart of it is they look the intersection of this guy with unbelievable self-confidence yeah. meeting a place that was trying to advocate for a kind of pan-African self-confidence in, yeah. in America. And that, you know, that was a potent combination and it Ooh. helped both. And then he becomes one of the biggest American heroes. So, I, so I'm old enough. I, I grew up, and, and yes. my whole story is sort of funny with him is that, uh-huh. and I was telling uh, Kareem this, is that, um, you know, when I grew up, we sort of followed how my dad and I would watch it, you know, uh-huh. and Sonny Liston was the Negro we knew. So yeah. it was like, uh, okay, Sonny, and who is this brash guy? You know, I hadn't right. been old enough to watch the Olympics or I'd miss them or whatever. So there was a little discomfort at the braggadocio. And then there was a moment where after that it all changed and suddenly he was our hero. And a lot of it had to do with anti-Vietnam War stuff and the stance, Absolutely. the principal stance he was taking. Yeah. But it was also that Howard Cosell had come around and stopped baiting him, stopped calling him Cassius Clay yeah. and suddenly was realizing what he was doing and the kind of principled stand that he was taking. And then something happened. He went from being really hated or feared because he was – as as they would have said at the mm-hmm. turn of the century, a new Negro. He was promoting something else. That's right. um, 
And that to, to that was the thing. And then he was hated by most people because of the refusal to induct. But at, afterwards, how did he go from being one of the most reviled human beings to being without question the most known and beloved person on earth? The Pope is like a distant second uh-huh. to Muhammad Ali. And that's that's what I want to f- try to get to the yeah. heart of. Well, I, I cannot wait for that, you know. And if you want to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what you've just worked on, yeah. country music. Yeah. And when did you start this? And I'm always interested as to why you choose a subject. Like, I, I can feel the obvious sense of why you chose Ali. It's yeah. very personal. Sure. You know, you took that journey yourself, as you say. It makes sense. Why country music? So, you know, the glib answer is always that I don't feel like I choose the subjects, they choose me. Mm-hmm. And that's because I'm all the stories that I've done are in American history. Right. I'm, you know, and so I've made the same film over and over again, sort of asking this question about who are we? And I'd done jazz, which wasn't my music. I was a child of R&B and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was important for me to understand and get in and, and, and understand it. So then, you were learning it. So it kind I of never make process, right? I, all films. Uh, even when I thought I knew something like baseball yeah. and Vietnam, you know, it's like a daily humiliation from then on <laughs> yeah, about what you right, didn't know. Exactly. Yeah, you thought you know it. Well, but that's you're great wrong. though. That's kind of that's exciting, it, because right? the, you know yeah. the, what happens is documentaries are traditionally people telling you what you should know. Mm. And that the last time I checked, that's called homework. And yeah. what if it could be a process of discovery where you could then share with the audience, hey, look what I just discovered. So sure. when yeah. so, I've had an old friend of mine, you know, I was in Dallas, and, and he said, do you ever think about country music? And it was like, boom, wow. every light went off. And I said, of course, yes. And I went back to uh, one of my producing and writing partners, Dayton Duncan, and he was like, boom, yes, let's do this. So for eight and a half years, we've been doing it. And the problem is, is that most people have this idea of country music. That's right. Big fan. You know, you'll be in there and we'll still show you stuff you didn't know and that'll be exciting. Um, The middle ground, well, you know, I I don't think I really know about it. And we show them the stuff that goes, oh, I didn't realize how much I knew and how much I loved of it. Then there's the crowd, Ken, man, I loved everything you've done, but country music? (laughs) Like that. And then I said, well, just please watch. And, you know, after episode eight, they're in a puddle, they're sobbing, they're apologizing. I'm probably closer to that group. No, I know it is. And I made it it for you. I made it for you because here's the thing. Let me just tell you a few things. We we ensilo everything for convenience and commerce into its own little category, right? Mm -hmm. So country music is this and it's different from this and it's different than that. All American music comes from the American South Mm -hmm. in the rub, that's the title of our first episode, episode, between black and white, between the fiddle from Europe and the banjo from Africa. Okay, so if you took the Mount Rushmore of the early greats of country music, A.P. Carter of the Carter family, Mm -hmm. he goes out song catching. He can't remember the melody. He remembers the words. (laughs) But Leslie Riddle, an African-American guy from another holler, he can remember the melodies and they work together. And he's so, basically a homeless guy he's, he's at the taking, time they pick him up. He's right? taking he's taking yeah. songs that a white Protestant uh, hymn from the yeah. late 19th century that an African-American minister that he knew had reworked into When the World's on Fire. Mm-hmm. The Carter family says, man, that melody's great. They're, one of their biggest hits is Little Darling, Pile of Mine. Yeah. The same thing. When the World's on Fire is a great gospel stomp. Little Darling, Pile of Mine is a classic Carter family folk song. Woody Guthrie hears and goes, wow, that's a great melody. Let me write another song called This Land is Your Land. land. We're all about stealing. Anytime you say American this, it's mongrel. It's mutt. So A.P. Carter, African-American mentor, 
right? Yeah. Jimmy Rogers, the first superstar of country music, African-American mentor, suffused with the blues. Half of his things are called the blues. Um, mm-hmm. Bill Monroe, the father of string band and, sure. and of bluegrass music. He has Kentucky. a guy named Arnold Schultz, an, Af- mm-hmm. Schultz, an African-American mentor. Um, Hank Williams, arguably the greatest of all country composers, has Rufus Tot Payne, who C said, taught me everything I needed to know about music. And Johnny Cash arrives in Memphis in 1954 yeah. and seeks out Gus Cannon, an old jug band guy who recorded way back in the 20s and gives Johnny Cash enough something to be able to become Johnny Cash. So here you have this music that comes down to us as pretty lily white except for Charlie Pride, and it's not. There's no borders. Everybody's listening to everything else. Mm -hmm. Country music is one of the the elements, one of the atoms of a complex molecule of American music that's fused to jazz. Willie Nelson is a jazz singer. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Chet Atkins, an old-time guitar player, he plays like Django Reinhardt, the jazz guy. It's fused to rhythm and blues. In fact, the marriage of country and rhythm and blues produced rock and role. So, I mean, they're all rockabilly. They're all connected folk. All of this stuff Mm -hmm. is happening. And and it goes both ways. This isn't just the classic, oh, it's appropriation. One story. In 1962, Mm -hmm. um, Ray Charles is given creative control of an album for the first time in his extraordinary career. Creative control. You can do whatever you want. You're so great. We love you. Do whatever you want. He comes out with Modern sounds in country and Western music. Mm-hmm. He's got a Hank Williams song, Hey, Good Looking. He puts out an old song by Don Gibson, not so, not so old, but a song by Don Gibson, country song, called I Can't Stop Loving You. It's the number one song, pop and everywhere, mm-hmm. in the summer of 1962. You know, Charlie Pride's a great player. There's earlier at the Grand Old Opry, an African-American harmonica player is the most popular thing on the Opry in the 30s on radio named D. Ford Bailey. Mm-hmm. You know, Darius Rucker, not that much. Now, Little Nas X, right? Everybody's right. all in a tizzy, have their knickers all tied up because it's a binary thing. Well, they won't put them on the Billboard charts. Who the fuck cares? He's the most popular song in the country, mm-hmm. and everybody's buying it. Everybody's listening to the same thing. And if if commerce and convenience can't deal with categorizing him, the audience doesn't care. We go out and buy it. Well, that's Old Town Road. It is interesting. I mean, there's a lot in what you just said, you know. But I do have the sense, and looking at this, especially early on. Well, let's talk about early on first, you know, because part of it does feel, and I don't want this to sound too— um, maybe, I don't know if cloister is the right word, but white music is a term, and maybe white American music is a kind of how it hits me. And the reason why I say that is because I feel that's who it's made for primarily. Even though, um, like, especially when, even when I look at clips, you know, in your documentary, I see who's attending these things. Yeah. And what's the community that's coming out so, there and who's buying those so, records? So and, go back to— And who's sharing it, you know? But— it's interesting that it pulls like blues. By the way, blues is another documentary. Oh yeah, like blues is the untold story in America. Blues of, is the it glue. influences everything. Everything. It's so fascinating. So that's 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 what I want to point mm-hmm. out. So the first time country music or mm-hmm. what we now call country music was recorded, it was a you was, know was a guy, Jimmy Rogers the a, first big no, star. Yeah, the first superstar. But yeah. the first time it was recorded, it was by a guy who was selling race records, meaning mm-hmm. blues records, meaning right. Bessie race Smith. Records. But he was all. Also recording 
ethnic records. So he had Chinese records to sell to the Chinese-American audience. He had Lithuanian to the Lithuanian-American. He had French, you know, all that. So he's wondering, is there a market for what he called old-time hill country music, like whatever's filtering down from Appalachia? And yes, there was. And so people are— It's kind of niche. Yeah, everything was niche. Right. Race records were niche. All that stuff was niche. And there's a success. So the niche— gives us a little bit of a head fake. It mm-hmm. just, you know, by the time we're getting radio stations, we think, oh, the, uh, only black people listen to the R&B stuff. Mm-hmm. Only white people listen to the country music. But the cross-pollination yeah. often delivered on the air of the blues, which is the common thing. It's mm-hmm. it's the rue and the gumbo of jazz. It's suffused in country music. It's obviously in the blues and rhythm and blues. It's in a lot of folk as well. So Mm -hmm. all of American music, I'm suggesting, comes from that tension. Sure. And it's, you know, for most of our history, the friction between black and white in the American South has been a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And I am not trying to say that the story of country music is not without its indignities, indignities we chart. Mm -hmm. But there is something extraordinarily positive about the African-American influence. And maybe it doesn't speak that out of commerce and categorization, but we do. It kind of never acknowledged it. And so now it's time to share it and do that. And it's interesting. You know, Charlie uh, Pride, uh, they wouldn't put his picture on albums. And he'd walk out into an audience and people would go, yeah, and then – it would calm right down when they look at him, and he said, uh, <laughs> "It must be shocking to see this guy with a permanent tan." And then sure. they laugh, and then he opens his mouth. He's got the purest country voice you'd ever seen, and right. most DJs were playing his stuff unaware of his race. So there's your test. That's your blind test: character, mm-hmm. talent versus color of skin. But then, of course, America behaves the way it does sure. because we get so you know upset about melatonin. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the 30s um, what a time that was for country music because even the song Hard Times, yeah. you know, kind of, I feel like country music arguably gets its start there in its identity almost, you know, even with Gene Autry bringing the Western element into yeah. it, you know, the yeah. the the myth of the cowboy yeah. and that sort but of thing. But it sets off, you know, It feels like it finds its 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 voice, its roots in that, you know, for its for its solid. Yeah, but there, you know, then then Hollywood's exploiting those cowboy yes, movies, that's true. and there's Mexican cowboys, and there are black cowboys, that's right. and there are cowgirls, yeah. and yeah. so all of that. Jeffries, I think, was the black cowboy. Yeah, and Herb Jeffries. Sure. And yeah. so you know, you've got. He's it, a big it's, star. Back it's then, hard yeah. to. I mean, we do tend to pretend that everything is segregated, and it is unfortunately way more segregated than mm-hmm. we want it to be, but. What's great about music, which Wynton Marsalis in this film calls the art of the invisible, he says a wonderful thing. It's the only art that's the invisible, right? Mm -hmm. It works on you really quickly. But he says, every one of us has an ethnic heritage, but we have a human heritage that's much greater. And it's too bad that we as a culture can't see how how perfect the, the, the you know, we blend together. Mm-hmm. And he says, the art tells the tale of us coming together. So when you, I mean, country music has been, uh, is a fairly simple music. Harlan Howard mm-hmm. called it three chords in the truth, <laughs> yes, right? Three chords in the truth. That means it yes. doesn't have the sophistication and the elegance of, of uh, and the complication of classical and some forms of jazz. Mm-hmm. But that other part, the truth, is that it's dealing with universal human things. As Winton says in the film, the joy of birth, the sorrow at death, Heartbreak, jealousy, greed, anger. I let God down. How do I get right with God? Mm. Look what my old lady did to me. Look what I did to my old lady. Feeling lonely, seeking redemption. Now, these are not white 
emotions. You know, when Hank Williams said, you hear that lonesome whippoorwill? He sounds too blue to fly. The midnight train is whining low. I'm so lonesome I can cry. Mm. He didn't say, this is just a white emotion. Sure. And so that crosses and travels over. And the other joyous song that he sings, you know, hey, uh, "Hey, good looking. I got a $2 bill. I got a hot rod Ford and a $2 bill. And I know a place right over the hill where Mm -hmm. the dance of and the soda pot. You know, I mean, you come up. Why don't you come along with me? I mean, this is this is great. It's being heard by everybody. And what happens is you have two guys. One, a dark-eyed troubadour from Dias, Arkansas, and another, uh, uh, a guy with long sideburns from Tupelo, Mississippi, arrive at Sun Studios in Memphis in 1954, and they play, they merge R&B, white church, black church, and hillbilly music, and they produce rock and roll, period. And it's Elvis and it's Johnny Cash. Yeah. And Johnny stays and Elvis goes. You know, what's so interesting is... What country music has, which I think is you can even even hip hop has has this or rap I should say, um, that is it's a cousin to country music. Are the story is the storytelling, you know? Because when usually when people talk about the the storytelling music of the Great American Songbook, you think of Cole Porter, you right. know those type of people, yeah. you know. But you never really hear country music put in that term, and yet country music is the place for incredible so, stories. So right? Charlie Parker, the inventor uh-huh. of bebop, yes, with Dizzy right. Gillespie, in our jazz series that came out in two thousand one, Nat Hentoff, the late jazz critic at the Village Voice, uh-huh. tells a story about. He's on 52nd Street between sets. He's feeding the jukebox, putting in nickels, mm-hmm. playing country music, playing Hank Williams, playing I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Right. And the cats are going, hey, Bird, why are you playing that? And he just looked at them and he said, listen to the stories. And that's what we, that's yeah. what human beings do. And, you know, our, we have a, an episode called The Hillbilly Shakespeare. That's yeah. what Hank Williams was called, the mm-hmm. way that he could spare down, you know, pare down language to its sparest and most direct kind of mainlining human emotion, whether it was joyous and hey, good looking or sad and I'm so lonesome I could cry mm-hmm. and everybody else. And before him was Jimmy Rogers, who's great. And, and ahead of him is Loretta, who's going to address women's issues well before anybody in rock or country are going to address women. Don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. <laughs> you know, the pill. This is, no, you know, Grace Slick isn't saying anything like yeah. this, you know. And then you've got great poets like Chris Christofferson, who are English literature graduates, mm. giving up a career in the in the in the military to come and push brooms at Columbia Records, and finally given a chance to record, you know, a song uh, that is the name of the secretary of one of the uh, songwriting folks and inspired by Federico Fellini's La Strada. And it's called Me and Bobby McGee. And when you hear how that, or say how Dolly Parton, uh, why she wrote... I will always love you. Mm-hmm. Now we know Whitney Houston's versions, just sure. as 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 Janis Joplin's took it and went to some other place. Mm-hmm. Um, and Whitney's is really great; still raise the hair on the back of your head. But when you hear um, Dolly and why she did it, and then her first performance of it. It, w- it will go up and rise up to parity. Yeah. And when we talk about Hard Times, which is written in the 19th century mm-hmm. by Stephen Foster, who's writing some unabashedly minstrel stuff. Hard Times one of the most beautiful songs in all yeah. American history, and it is all about suffering. It's, you know, sure. l- you know let us pause, you know, and, and sup sorrow with the poor. It's identification with the fact that hard times are there. Mm-hmm. In our second episode, we have Mavis Staples singing it yeah. to open it, to just tell you, 
you know, this. Or when we have an episode called Will the Circle Be Unbroken, Mm -hmm. we start that with Leon Russell singing it. Yeah. Who's a white guy, blues and fight, you know. It's still a very powerful song. When I was listening to it, I'm like, wow, you know, the the power of some of these songs. Even hearing Jimmy Rogers yodeling, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm hearing something from, because that yodel to me, as you say, borrows from Minstrel and some of those other shows. So I almost feel like I'm hearing something from the 19th century. You are, you are. There was a, a, you know, don't don't laugh. There's a yodeling craze in the Uh 1840s from Swiss and German influences in America. And somehow, um, Jimmy Rogers, who's so blues inflected. I mean, most of his stuff yeah. is called Blue Yodel Number no. Nine, right. or the blues. He's yeah. got. He's got. He recorded with Louis Armstrong in wow. 1929 this thing called Blue Yodel Number no. Nine, which is standing on the corner, an old blues hymn, mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. And and then Johnny Cash, when he makes it, clears himself more or less of drugs and pills, yeah. and gets his national television show. He brings Louis Armstrong on late 60s, early 70s, and they play that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you just kind of go, what boundaries? Yeah. And that's what I, I, I feel like even today, we all go along with the fact that, oh, country music's in the lower 40 here. You know, it's got, mm-hmm. a, it's got a piece of hay sticking out of its teeth <laughs> and it's sitting on a bale of hay, sure. you know? And there's that in the way it presents. But if you get away a lot, if you cut away a lot of the kudzu, and look, in any musical form, there's lots of junk. There's Obviously, Drek and pop. There's Drek and jazz. There's Drek and folk. There's Drek mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff. You clear that away. All of a sudden, you've got three chords and the truth, and the story is interconnected. Mm-hmm. And that's what we wanted to say too: is that it was never ever one thing. The big bang of country music is that summer of 1927 when the same guy Ralph Peer records the Carter family, who mm-hmm. represent kind of Sunday morning, and the. Uh, and Jimmy Rogers, uh, a few days later, who represents most definitely Saturday Night, blues-inflected yeah. stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and his life was Saturday Night. And his life yeah. was Saturday Night. And, <laughs> and that tension is in jazz. It's in R&B. Yeah. It's in all of American music, the good, the bad, and coexisting sometimes within the, the same The and the person. Exactly. exists in all those. But, but yes. we think it's between people when it's often within people. Like yeah. Johnny Cash, Roseanne, it said, you know, my father could hold two opposing views at yeah. the same time equally without feeling to need a judgment. And his variety show, to the terror of the network executives, would always have a gospel piece in it. And at the same time, he's singing, you know, the Folsom uh, Prison Blues. You know, I shot a man in Reno just to see him die. Mm. And then two songs later, were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, if, if, if if you simplify it, then you're doing an injustice, just the way we do an injustice when we say, all white people are this way or all black people right. are this way or they. And what you begin to do is is fall into the same trap that we think that we're mm-hmm. getting ourselves out, that we're too smart of, tra- of getting out. And our work is an attempt to say, you know what? It's super complicated. Absolutely. But the bigger, the wider the lens, the more inclusive it is. It doesn't, it doesn't take away. And this is a whole argument with the monuments and is like they're taking away my heritage. No, we're not. Robert E. Lee said – Make no monuments to the Confederacy. It will only breed bitterness and disunion. So he just gave us permission to take all those things down or put them in a museum or whatever. Yeah. And that flag is not the flag, what we call the Confederate flag. Sure. That's not the flag of the Confederacy. That's a different flag. That was one flag 
one battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia that was adopted by our own homegrown ISIS al-Qaeda terrorist group called the Ku Klux Klan. That's the flag they they rose. Mm-hmm. And that worked its way into Mississippi's flag in, in the period after Reconstruction when white mm-hmm. rule was being brutally reimposed and worked its way into all the other flags of the Confederacy after 1954. Hmm. What happened in 1954? Let me think. Why <laughs> would it be suddenly something versus Board of Education? Oh, that's it. That's it. Brown, and it's Brown versus yeah. So yeah. now they've all gone out of every flag but Mississippi because they're claiming it's part of our heritage. That went in when all those statues and monuments. Robert E. Lee never visited Louisiana, never visited New Orleans, but mm-hmm. until Mitch Landrew took down that big obelisk and statue of Robert E. Lee because it was put up in a time after Reconstruction when white rule, mm-hmm. Jim Crow, and the Ku Klux Klan were going on. This was just, it's easy. And I just go back, I'll hide, I'm happy to hide behind Robert E. Lee's skirts and say, make no monument to the Confederacy. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot of preaching you guys here in Black and the Air. That was amazing. Um, when I was at San Quentin, some guy yeah. said, man, I thought you were black. <laughs> he was, I think he was just kidding, but I, I said, well, you never know. <laughs> well, you never know. You That's never true. know in America. One drop, some, all, one drop of Negro we blood, We need to right? do some 23 of me here. I did it. I, got, I have 1% uh, sub-Saharan African, which there means good, somebody— good. You know, well, that's apparently where we're all from, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. we are all from there. Yes. And that's why the Nation of Islam could say that all the white people were from outer space. Uh, you know what? Who knows, you know? The other thing that struck me, another thing that, that really struck me about this, about country music, are the characters, yeah. you know? And I love how you guys, how you really humanize all of them and we get to know them because it's one thing to listen to the music but to really get to know the people country music has so many interesting characters well this is what it is I yes, mean, I'm in the really storytelling is, right? business let's you know I, I, mm-hmm. I, it's history people say oh you're history well history is mostly made up of the word story plus hi yeah. And so I, I I just gravitate those things that are good stories. And mm-hmm. then after the fact, you look up and you say, wow, this has a larger meaning in this stuff. But it, it, we're just trying to master these incredible stories and these incredible yeah. characters. And it's true. And and there's another place. You know, at the end of March, we did a concert at the Ryman. Mm-hmm. We had Rhiannon Giddens, who's an African-American country star now, mm-hmm. just superstar right now, taking off. She sings Crazy by Patsy Cline and mm. brings down the house. Then Rhiannon and Marty Stewart and Emmylou Harris and I and our crew, we go and camp out for three days at Jazz and Lincoln Center a month later where Winton and his guys are can't believe the almost Charlie Parker-like virtuosity mm-hmm. of, of Marty Stewart on the mandolin imitating Bill Monroe and imitating his own talent. Mm-hmm. And there's Emmylou singing Hard Times. And there's Rhiannon doing I Can't Stop Loving You, rearranged by Jazz at Lincoln Center. There was three sold-out nights. Nobody for a second thought that anybody had trampled into anybody else's territory, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't like, a Negro's moving into our neighborhood. The values are going down. It Mm -hmm. It was just pure American joy, just as it was at the Ryman concert. Yeah. It's funny how, like when I look at the the 60s, which is an interesting period for things that were happening in the culture, 
music. Whenever you see clips of the 60s, there's always a particular type of music that's always played. But you never hear country music as the soundtrack of the 60s. So in our, in our yeah, Vietnam if, thing, we, we, we suddenly went, you know, this is such a prejudice. World yeah. War II, too. You know, if I say sure. music of World War II, you yeah, say they, they, in the mood. That's right. You it's know, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, exactly right? right? So a majority of the soldiers came mm. from rural areas in the South and, right. and in fact nationalized country music. There are all these radio stations that have been broadcasting through the 30s. Mm. But it really helped to nationalize an interest in country music. And one of the great hits was there's a star-spangled banner waving somewhere uh, spoken by Elton Britt. It was spoken from um, uh, the the point of view of somebody who was disabled, Hmm. crippled as they say in the film, but disabled person who couldn't serve and was desperate to figure out how to help the war Mm -hmm. effort. And that prefigures – Mel Tillis says, you know, Ruby, don't take your love to town, which is uh, – he's talking about a World War II vet who's been right. injured, who can't go out and worry that his wife is going to town on him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a big hit around the time of the Vietnam War. So, you know, we – we. I think there's a kind of we, – we think we know what country music is and yeah. we think it's one thing. And we're saying from the very beginning, if there's night and day, literally, between the Saturday night of Jimmy Rogers and the Sunday morning of the Carter family yeah. and then after that big bang, it goes out and gets cowboy music and western swing and it does the country politan and the Nashville smoother sound. And it's got the Bakersfield sound from California, mm-hmm. which is hard edge and rim shot and Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and the Maddox Brothers and Rose, the most colorful hillbilly band in, <laughs> in the country. And then it's it's everywhere. I mean, there's a country station in New York City. I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, at some point, we, we, we just have to sort of say, this is who we are. This is part of our musical heritage. And because you can't define the borders between it and, it and R&B or it and jazz and, or it and yeah. folk or it and blues, um, then it all has to be contained in one vessel. That's what we try to do. Make it complicated. I have a little neon sign in the editing room uh-huh. that says, in cursive, it's complicated. <laughs> well, yeah, like even when you see clips from like uh, the early 60s and when you see if you're going to see clips of young people screaming at, at a band, it's going to be they're screaming at the Beatles right. or they're screaming at, Jam- at James Brown maybe, you know, the, the the Motown acts or it's going to be that. But to see kids screaming at Roger Miller, like you don't yeah. see that. You know? In our and, film, you do. You and see then, them tearing yes, their hair out like they're teeny the, boppers with Frank Sinatra. And then for me, it remembers – I get to remember because I grew up in the time how great Roger Miller yeah. was. Trailers you know, because for sale or rent. Yeah, it was an amazing song. Yes, about exactly. Fifty cents. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's so great. King I, of the Road was I an amazing a, song. I yeah. gave a speech yeah. the other day, and um, and I and I was talking about country music and trying to talk about exactly the same things. Yeah, and to like to try to get rid of the preconcept. All of us suffer from preconception and conventional stuff, and then there's right. so much stuff. Categorization does help, and and but we realize we're limiting. It's limiting, limiting. Like my kids, yeah. like I'll say, oh, this black guy came over and said that they go, they, they don't see a black guy. They just say, mm-hmm. you know, person, or I say oh, this large person. They don't say a large person. They say mm-hmm. a person. So you know, I'm, my kids are teaching me. Well, they how know how racist and how embedded you know, judgmental you are. Yes, yes. exactly. Like, <laughs> yes. You know, despite what the San Quentin inmates <laughs> say, but you know, I get they a just speech, know you, better. and I was planning to end on reciting the lyrics. The four verses of I'm so lonesome I could cry Uh, and with about three seconds to go I said I'm gonna sing it and I did Uh and I mean I'm terrible I can't keep it but Mm. you know what it meant was that 
the the thing that surprised us more than anything, more than the the dynamics of race mm-hmm. that were present in in country music, more than the fact that it's all the story from the very beginning uh, of strong women, all of the geographical mm-hmm. varieties of country music was the emotion of it. We were not prepared yeah. for the fact that my guy comes in and says, man, I loved all your stuff, but country music, I don't know. And he finishes episode eight a couple of days later as we're having a screening in the editing room and he's in a puddle sobbing. Yeah. He, you know, has been apologizing for a year, buying up, you know, I got all of, of Merle Haggard. Now I'm going to the Leuven Brothers. Now I'm going to do this. And, you know, how can I get a recording of D. Ford Bailey? And, you know, and you just go, all you got to do is open open up. Yeah, it's also striking uh, the role of women in country music. Huge. And even from early on with the Carter uh So family, Mother Maybell yeah. mm-hmm. is the original guitarist and yeah. popular guitarist. And, right. and I mean, Dwayne Allman, if could, if he could suddenly be here, mm-hmm. he would say, oh, yeah, everything leads from her. And Sarah sure. Carter, a sister-in-law, is the keening voice, the wailing voice. That, yeah. as, as Roseanne says, it's almost foundational. It's almost been – she's in the bedrock. It's been around forever. Mm-hmm. And it's telling the truth one note at a time. Yeah. And they're the ones who will sing, will the circle be unbroken or hard times or mm-hmm. whatever the, the thing is. And you feel it. And it's no wonder the country took off and is yeah. omnivorous it so in its, in its yeah. interest in other forms or spreading the country in the way it does. And when you even listen to Patsy Cline today, who, <sighs> she's always been one of my favorites, her voice is so raw. There's you know, a, there's it's a, so honest. It's honest. She's yeah. tough, broad. You know, she swears like a sailor. She's yeah. not going to take shit <laughs> yeah. from anybody. And no, it is no, no. it is pretty impressive, yeah. uh, her story. And it's just like like Jimmy Rogers, like Hank Williams, yeah. who's gone before 30, like, you know, the sadness and mm-hmm. tragedy of Patsy Cline's life. Yeah. You just sort of sit and wonder, like, what else would we have? But right. crazy – written by Willie Nelson, who couldn't get any traction because his phrasing was so crazy. And she had trouble in the recording studio getting it because all she could hear was Willie's demo, which was in a different jazz-like pace. And finally she comes in after the musicians had laid down everything a couple weeks later and nails it on the first take. It's the number one jukebox tune of all time. More nickels have been pushed into a jukebox for crazy than any other song ever. It's haunting. It still has a haunting feel to it. Yeah, so so – PBS recorded this concert at the Ryman that we did, and mm-hmm. a week, you know, our our series starts off on on uh, September fifteenth on Sunday night. The previous Sunday night, um, uh, the eighth, they're gonna they're gonna play this Ryman concert. Oh, nice! And you'll get to hear Rhiannon sing yeah. uh, "Crazy." You'll get it, to yeah. hear Vince Gill do. Um, I will always love you. You'll get to hear Roseanne Cash sing her father's most poignant song, mm-hmm. um, I Still Miss Someone. Yeah. And she sang it at his memorial service at the Opry, and there's not a dry eye in the house, and you yeah. can't even get through it now. I mean, its second verse goes, I go out on a party to have a little fun, but I find a darkened corner because I still miss someone. Now, you, I defy... <laughs> Anybody in the sound of our voice to yeah. say they don't know what that they're talking. What I, I don't know what they're talking about. Oh, I've always gone to a party. It's always been fun. Yeah, it's always great. Mm-hmm. But everybody knows what that is. Two figures stand. I mean, there's so many important figures in this. I would say the uh, the two people who really stand out to me for different reasons: um, Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton. Yeah, you yeah. know Johnny Cash because of the his road to. Being the Johnny Cash that we know, 
I mean, it's amazing the man stayed alive. Yeah, no, he, well, well, Roger Miller, they called him the king of the pill takers, and yeah. he could keep it together, at least for a while. Johnny couldn't drink, yeah. and, and particularly the drugs really threw him for a loop. And, of course, he left his first wife and wanted to sure. uh, and, uh, marry June, but she said— And there, that was another racial issue, uh, well, the photographer was, that took the picture of his yeah, wife. So he gets arrested in yes. Texas for possession of amphetamines, right. and uh, he's being released, and his wife, who's Sicilian, yeah. uh, Sicilian descent— Which, there's a big Moorish influence in Sicilians. She, they won't tell you that, but she, that's— she comes, yeah. and the photograph looks like she's an African-American. Right. So the Ku Klux Klan and the White Citizens oh, Council, they jump on this and talk about don't buy, boycott this mongrelized American music yeah. and just tells you all that stuff has always been around. And you know what? I'm afraid to say it's always going to be around, particularly with this knucklehead sort of giving mm. permission for folks to yield to their baser instincts rather than their better angels. But Cash is a polymath. He's interested in everything. He's mm-hmm. once, he's interested in gospel music. He, he's mm-hmm. interested in the plight of Native Americans. He's going to prisons and saying, you are somebody. Yeah. Just because you committed this crime does not uh, leave you any less human, nor do you have any less possibility of redemption in the eyes of your creator than anyone else. And he's he's he knows Bob Dylan, and he's interested in the folk scene. He's interested in the rock scene. Look at the end of his life. Yeah. Rick Rubin and Trent Reznor are part of the resurrection in the last couple of years of his mm-hmm. life. I mean, you listen to Hurt, you know, that's an unbelievable thing. So Johnny Cash is the great patriarch. He's the polymath who yeah. reminds people that the categorization of country music into something is utterly foolish and that even Mm -hmm. as I was growing up he was the one who instantaneously crossed over what he was talking about and these are really complex themes and then Dolly there is no better voice. God has never given a better voice to anyone than to her. <laughs> she is one of the greatest composers, and I would hold Completely. up. Now, we all love I Will Always Love You, but I would put in my Desert Island tape, if I had five, I'd put Jolene in there. I don't Jolene think there's is a an amazing better, song. Yeah. better, better song. Right. I don't mean country song. I mean a better song yeah. than Jolene. And on top of that, she's a great businesswoman. She's self-deprecating and funny. Yeah. And she gave me the greatest interview in this thing, and, it, and you just realize— Wow. I mean, there's some great composers, you know, obviously Jimmy Rogers, obviously mm-hmm. Hank Williams, uh, obviously Chris Christopherson, obviously Loretta Lynn, but Dolly Parton, but Dolly, you've got to put her on. She's in a whole other category. She's in another category. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love her. I'm glad you saw that because I, I sort of feel like, you know, this is the thing about the middle ground. The people who love it, you know, it's like this woman after the Civil War series came out. She goes, oh, I love your Civil War series. What are you working on now? I said, oh, history of baseball. And she goes, my husband and my son would like that. And I said, oh, so you're a military history expert? She goes, no, no, no. That it was emotions, the story. I said, look, I already got your, your husband and your son for the uh-huh. baseball series. I made it for you. So in a way— I'm making it for the person who says I don't like country music because uh-huh. you 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 will surrender if you see this thing. But but I know the fans will be there and they'll be surprised at at what's what they're learning as well. And for those people who say, well, I don't I don't really know that much about it, they'll suddenly realize how much they do know about uh-huh. it and how much there is a a, a foothold into country music from wherever it is. Maybe it's going to be Jimmy Rogers and that early sure. blues stuff. Maybe it's going to be the poetry of Hank Williams. Maybe it's going to be the, uh, the the omnivorous curiosity of Johnny Cash. Maybe it's going to be the outspoken 
woman that that Loretta Lynn is or that Dolly mm-hmm. Parton is or that Patsy Cline or uh, I can name a Del- Connie Smith, Jeannie Seeley, B- Bobby Gentry, you know, uh, Roseanne mm-hmm. uh, Cash. Maybe it's Dwight Yoakam is going to bring you in in some way. Maybe it's these three people at the heart of our film, Marty Stewart, who is, you know, this and, and Ricky Skaggs and and um, Vince Gill. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you're going to find a place or maybe it's Little Nas X. And because of that, you're going to go back and say, so where did he get some of this from? Yeah. And then you begin to realize there is a human tributary that's been flowing all along, not just the White River that's parallel to the Black River, that's mm-hmm. parallel to the Brown River. Haven't even talked today about the Mexican influence. You know, mm-hmm. when he does Ring of Fire, he brings up Cowboy Jack Clement from Texas, a producer, and says, I, I need some Mexican horns. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> By the way, dun, another dun, great dun, song. Dun, 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 yeah, dun. Right. That's a Mexican yeah, riff at the absolutely. beginning of Ring of Fire, which is saying, yikes, I've been married, but I'm in love with this other woman, and I'm falling into this thing of the love for this other woman. Mm-hmm. And it had ironically been written by June's sister and who had recorded it, Helen, or maybe she co-wrote it or maybe someone else did, but she didn't didn't go anywhere. And then Johnny goes, you know, I think I'll record it. And of course, you know, it's speaking exactly to the truth of his experience and the truth of many of our experiences at times. Yeah, what was, now doing a project like this, it takes a while, it's a long time. I mean, just collecting the photographs alone, you know. Do you want want this this stuff? So Yeah. So, 101 interviews, mm-hmm. 20 of them are dead now, including wow. Merle and Ralph Stanley and Cowboy Jack Clement. Are, are you all. present for all these interviews? No, I, no. In this one, because my co-producers are accomplished, I probably did okay. 30% of them. Got it. Um, but I, I did Dolly. I did Vince Gill. Mm-hmm. I did Marty Stewart. I did, you know, a lot, a lot of them. Sure. Um, but – uh, we've lost 20 of them mm-hmm. at 175 hours, and mm. you know, only a few hours are going to get in the final yeah. thing. We touched, saw, handled 100,000 photographs, entered into our database 30,000, and crazy. used 3,300 of them in the final film, which is a huge number. We had and collected over 1,000 hours of footage. Mm-hmm. So the three of us, Dayton Duncan, the other producer, Julie Dunphy, Dayton was the writer, I was the director and, and producer. Shout, shout out to Dayton Duncan. It's a beautiful the script. In this is oh, beautiful. it's it's beautiful, and he right. writes way longer. So yeah. then I come into my long knives, and we do the horse trading. So mm-hmm. we all live in New Hampshire. We make maple syrup there. <laughs> it takes forty gallons of sap okay. to make one gallon of syrup, and that's right. what it is. You'd think making a film is additive, and you'd be correct. You're building something, mm-hmm. but it's more subtractive. You've got this big, Absolutely. huge thing. It's like a piece of stone that comes into a sculptor's studio, and you're 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 chipping away and chipping away. And wow, all we see in the gallery of the museum is the finished piece, she has to honor the negative space of creation, which is that rubble on the floor. Does it make part two? No. Does it do with something else? Maybe a DVD extra if you're throwing a bone to a writer who felt like I just chopped off his left arm because I took that great scene out. And it was great. That cutting room floor is filled not with bad scenes, but with good scenes. But that's how how we operate. We have to take eight and a half years. People come up to us and go, man, eight and a half years on a project? You must be so bored. I said, look, it is so hard to to leave it that mm-hmm. the only thing that softens the pain of that is now. It's this evangelical, you know, 30-city tour, you know, 300 interviews, all of this stuff because you can, 
you don't have to leave it yet. Mm-hmm. It's like it's still it's still part of your heart. And it will always be. And we'll always be friends with the people, Roseanne and Marty and all the people that we've we've become close to in in making the film, just as we were, you know, with Shelby Foote until he died with Shelby with, Foote was amazing. Uh, amazing. Southern yeah. point of view without a southern bias Completely. to help you do it. And he's the only person who walked Shiloh on the day, April 6th and 7th, that the battle took place. So he looked and he saw where the peach blossoms were mm-hmm. and what the trees and how, how, how leafed out stuff is and what the contour of the land was. And he did that for every single battle. Yeah. And so it's nice to have that academic thing, what it means, the cause and effects. But I was interested in what happened during the Civil War and everyone would say, oh, well, you should go to talk to old professor so-and-so as if it's bankrupt to be concerned about military stuff. And here's this guy who wrote a 3,000, three-volume, 3,000-page history of the Civil War that actually tells you what happened in this battle and who did this left flank and who screwed up and who didn't show up in time and who did this thing. And, and it's just – it, it, it's like reading Gibbon or Macaulay, the great, mm-hmm. you know, rise and fall, uh, you know, decline and fall of the Roman Empire or some sure. of these great histories that are literature mm-hmm. at the same time. And people today in our, you know, in our polarized thing want to say, well, you know, Shelby Foote, like, an, like a mural that shows stuff that you don't want to see should be thrown out. We got we, – we have to keep – the history. We have mm-hmm. to understand. I'm working on a history. The next war I'm doing after Vietnam is, is the Revolutionary War. Ugh, I was going to ask for World War I. Well, World mm-hmm. War I is the most important war in the history of human beings. And it's the most – It's to me, it's the war that we know the least about because I feel World War II was real hoggy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like it's it took, exactly right. World War II was so hoggy. <laughs> and well, it's – All uh, this world, attention. Here's World War II. Right. It's, it's, it's big. It's, yes. it's the biggest cataclysm in human history. But Oof. more of how we are now, like why people flew a plane yeah. into the World Trade Center comes from World War One. So much And I passed through it in several films. Yeah. It's really the rest of the world's war. Like our, our. I mean, yeah. it's number three in us, even though it's the most defi- most important mm-hmm. war in human history, mo- most important war in, in in our history. And the revolution's a, a, a distant th- yeah. third or fourth, even though it made us. Mm-hmm. But I think it, particularly today, we need to know where we came from and what slaves were doing and what sure. Native Americans, what women and ordinary yeoman farmers and stuff, mm-hmm. not just the powdered it's wig guys were doing. Tell, yeah. And that's the brother against brother. Because mm-hmm. you know, the Civil War is section against section. But, you know, Benjamin Franklin's son was the royal governor of New Jersey and stayed uh, loyal to the crown. Mm-hmm. 20% of the population were Tories and stayed loyal. That, that, that creates a really huge yeah. – from, from the Carolinas all the way to up to New Hampshire, that's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. So we're going to – we want to tell a different kind of story about the revolution. But um, the most important war is the Civil War. The second is the Second World War and the third – is World War One that we have a for American mindset, history for American history, mm-hmm. uh, but I, and and I'd even slip the revolution in before the First World War. But for everybody yeah. else, you want to know why the Middle East is the way it is. It's World War One. You know, want to know why Europe is the way it is. Yeah. It's World War One. You want to know why oil and you know it's all World War One, and. You know, I remember my dad was dying in the hospital room, dying when 9-11 happened. Mm. And he's an anthropologist. And he sat up and I had been – I said, Dad, what what do you think about this? He gave me this one-hour lecture on post-colonial manifestations that was – I mean for the fleeting second I could hang on to what my dad was saying. And he's so brilliant. He had given me the most cogent explanation for why it had happened. Mm. And it was just – it was stunning. It's stunning. And then he left, so I couldn't go back and say, Dad, what do you mean by this? And before before I let you go, well, I have two questions. One question is, um, and 
I apologize. This is more of a typical type of question. But, oh, uh, briefs. No, but no. What for you personally, Ken, was the most surprising thing about this journey of going into country music? Was there something that hit you? You said, motherfucker, you know. It was, wow. the, it was the emotion. I, mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? I, I mean, I, I said my first film, Brooklyn Bridge, mm-hmm. I was trying to raise money. I looked 12 years old and everybody was delighting and say, this child is trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge. No. Mm-hmm. And I, I came up with this line that I was interested in not merely excavating the dry dates and facts and um, events of the past, but I was interested in an emotional archaeology. This wasn't sentimentality or nostalgia. That's the enemy of good anything. Mm-hmm. But real emotion we run from. And I think that, you know, we, we basically um, – uh, in silo, we imprison country music with the idea that it's about good old boys and pickup trucks and six packs of beer and hound dogs because we don't want to deal. And that is a, an important but minor subgenre of, of country music because mm-hmm. we don't want to deal what it mainly deals with, which is two four-letter words, love and loss. Mm. And when that happened, when we could clear away the sort of the, the, the weeds, the kudzu of it, and get right at the, at the, at the really good stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, we're not the reading of the telephone book. This isn't the KTEL history, the time life history. This is like curated country music. That's right. You just kind of go, oh, my God, and it hits you. And, I mean, like in our editing room, we were crying before we even started to bring it out to other people who mm. represented the fans and the I don't knows and the I hate. And and there was nobody that was not taken by surprise as we were initially by the powerful emotions. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we want. Vince Gill actually says this in the last episode. He says, at the end of the day, all I really want out of music is to be moved. Mm. You know, and I think what we're saying is that in our normal rational lives, I get it. One plus one always has to equal two. You can't build a treehouse for your kids if you're working on another set of figures. But in everything else, we want one and one to be three. We want it in our love, in our mm-hmm. sex. We want it in our faith. We want it in our art. And that improbable calculus is what unites all of us. And that's what I've found in all the themes of the film, that if mm. if the sum of the parts is up to here and the whole is here, what's going on in there? And it's usually love. And it's, comp- you know, it's embarrassing yeah. because it's a difficult word to talk about. And I think that's in... The, the Vietnam War, I think it's in the Civil War. You know, why is it we are drawn to the poetry of Abraham Lincoln saying the mystic chords of memory stretching from every patriot to every patriot grave, from every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. When are you talking about better angels? You're talking about the insertion of love into a binary equation which is always you're wrong i'm right and if you Mm. don't make the other wrong all of a sudden you've permitted yourself new ears to hear country music or new ears to hear rhythm and blues and that's what history ought to be about the telling of stories that that broaden our ability to to be an emotional archaeology not just here's the quiz next tuesday but something else. And that's what we've been about for 40 years. I agree. Um, one of the phrases I like to use on people who, like I usually use it in sports, you know, for people, younger people who didn't see the 80s Lakers and they try to tell me that magic wasn't right. this and that. I'm like, hold on a second. You're a researcher. I'm a witness. You yeah, know? Right, exactly. I saw those games. But I want to thank you for doing all that research so that we all can be witnesses 
And it's really amazing, you know, to feel like a witness to this and not like we're watching research. It's one of the most extraordinary things that you do in all of your stuff. Winton in our jazz series, we were talking about minstrelsy, which is obviously yeah. this hugely degrading thing. And a lot of people don't know about that. Right. That, that, requ- that could be a whole history so, lesson on So its own. in the yeah. middle, he's talking about it, and it mm-hmm. is degrading. But he said, yeah. he said, remember that it's also this curiosity mm-hmm. about how these people live, mm-hmm. how they make love, how they sing, where they live, what they do, and the embarrassment because of slavery mm-hmm. and our own differences between people based on the color of their skin means that we have to degrade it and make it silly and stupid. Mm-hmm. But at its heart is a curiosity about mm-hmm. the other. And, and he said, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. Yeah. When he said that to me in the mid-'90s, I just thought – do not spend, have a day of your life when you haven't remembered that because we want to make everything cut and dry. Uh-huh. And there are a few things cut and dry. When my kid moves into the traffic, I go, no, <laughs> that's cut and dry. <laughs> right. But just about everything else is pretty interesting uh-huh. if you understand that placid surface of the water might have significant undertow taking place underneath uh-huh. and that sometimes – our greatest heroes are deeply flawed or deeply wounded, as in the Roosevelts, Mm -hmm. that the villains that we love to paint as one-dimensionally bad often have incredibly interesting characteristics that if we want to be honest, we have to actually include. And that makes for really complicated stories. Shakespeare understood that. Somebody Mm -hmm. said he had negative capability, meaning he could hold in tension the opposing forces within a character and not decide good or bad Mm -hmm. for the longest period of time. And that's what we need to do. Reserve judgment, not make the other wrong, try to hear what's going on. And then you can Mm -hmm. honor Winton's thing that sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And famously, Iago in Othello, to quote Shakespeare, said, I am not what I seem. Who is is the most important character? Yes. Is because he says exactly that. And that's, I think, you know, you and I are right now participating in a media culture that for its own convenience has to have everything be black and white, right. no pun intended, has to be yes or no, has to be red state or blue state, has to be young or mm-hmm. old, has to be gay or straight, has to be rich or poor, has to be male or female, has to be north or south or east or west. And we're not. You know, I have had the great privilege, Larry, of working in this incredibly interesting space between the two-letter – lowercase plural pronoun us Mm. and its larger capitalized version, the U.S. Mm. So all of the warmth of us and also we and our and then all of the majesty, the complexity, the complication and the controversy of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's it's an amazing space to be in and it's been a privilege to try to just sort of ferret out. And because it's public broadcasting, I can spend 10 years on Vietnam and eight years on this. And finally, I just want to thank you for two things, okay? Um, one is um, the unforgivable blackness, blackness, um, which I mean, I almost cry watching that. You know, it's just an amazing story of Jack Johnson, who was the, the first African American heavyweight. And whenever yeah. Muhammad Ali was sparring, uh, Angelo Dundee would say, "Ghost in the house, ghost in the house." And yeah. what he meant is that the now past Jack Johnson is watching you. And who do you think invented rope-a-dope? And who do you think was loud-mouthed in a time when more African-Americans were being assassinated, Mm -hmm. killed, lynched just for being black? And and Ali, 
for all of his courage, is operating in a decade we remember was dedicated supposedly mm-hmm. to civil rights. It makes the antecedent that Jack Johnson, who's not a compelling or sympathetic character, but nonetheless a person who just had read the Constitution and said, I wish to be a man and do what I want to do. And look at what happened. And the second, I didn't have a chance to speak to you about it, was the Vietnam War. I mean, I have to tell you, and I'm sure you heard from people about that, how important that was and how amazing that work was. And I'm I'm getting emotional as I'm talking about it. Me too. Because so many of our Americans were just forgotten, you know, for their contribution on that, Ken. And and I just want to thank you for bringing that story to life in such a real way um, of honoring the people that— On all sides. That sacrifice on all sides, that including the Vietnamese, you know. I, I live in a little town in New Hampshire. Last story. Mm-hmm. And um, a gal came up to me that I know and said, I have a friend who's a Vietnam vet. And he came to me and said, do you know Ken Burns? And I keep a pretty low profile mm-hmm. in and I actually live there, and I work there, and the films are made there. And um, she said, yeah. She goes, well, tell him that my best friend and I were in Vietnam together 50 years ago. He's been for 50 years in and out, mostly in a VA hospitals mm-hmm. for PTSD. And that this past winter, meaning, you know, from 18 to 19, he watched the, the Vietnam series five times. That's mm-hmm. 18 hours times five. Mm-hmm. And he told his friend, I think I'm okay now. Mm. And I just thought, okay, I have lived long enough to get the best review that I'll ever have in my Mm. life. It's imperfect. I think I'm okay. I think Mm. I'm okay now. But that just meant that I've done the right thing. Well, thank you you so much, Ken. That's amazing. Country Music, a film by Kim Burns. It's Sunday, September 15th, I believe. Yep. But um, I think it'll probably be in PBS all month, <laughs> you know. And it will. I, I can't wait to see the music festival associated with that too. Are you still touring with them at all, or doing any of that? You did that earlier this we year. We did. Right? We did a concert at the Ryman, and then we did three right. nights at Jazz at Lincoln Center. PBS filmed the Ryman concert, and okay, they'll so broadcast it on the eighth. It's wonderful. Great. I mean, so everybody behind the well. stage, they were going, "God, we never do this. This is great." And then I've run into people who say, "You know, I was at the Ryman. That was the best concert I've ever seen." Yeah. And so there's some love there that great. I hope you see. And then it starts on Sunday, the the fifteenth, the series, and they'll run episode one twice, and then the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth through episode four, and then the next. Sunday, episode five, Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, to do the remaining. And you and then it's, you know, it's for available for streaming, the DVDs and Blu-rays, companion book, great soundtrack, four CD yes, set right. of the soundtrack, which is pretty much like yeah. heroin. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like mainlining heroin. I mean, I don't know how you take all the best <laughs> into four CDs, but yes, we got a hundred we got a hundred songs that ought to float your boat. One of them will will we'll do Absolutely. It. Even if you hate country, I hate country music. No, no, no. Country music and American story, Kim Burns and American Treasure. Thanks, Ken. 